Welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guests this week are Mary Evans and Matt Cotchen, both professors of economics uh, at Claremont McKenna College and Yale University, respectively. Mary and Matt are two of the authors on a new study recently released in Science, uh, which takes a critical look at the EPA's recent and updated benefit-cost analysis of its mercury and air toxic standards, or MATS. At the risk of skipping to the punchline, uh, the paper authors suggest that the EPA's analysis is seriously flawed, and Mary, Matt, and I talk about why they and their colleagues reached this conclusion, what the perceived flaws in the analysis could mean for human health and the environment, and how the administration should proceed from here. Stay with us. Mary and Matt, thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. It's really nice to talk with both of you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, pleasure. So you both are environmental economists, which is a discipline that's, of course, close to RFF's heart. And um, before we talk about the specific piece of research under discussion today, can you tell our listeners just a little bit about what drew you to economics and maybe to environmental economics in particular? Mary, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Um, Well, as a child, I spent a lot of time with my family experiencing the environment. My father has always been an avid fisherman. Uh, in fact, he's he's continuing to fish even as we speak. Uh, and so I have fond memories of being around the water in particular. And I, I wouldn't characterize my dad as an environmentalist, but he did instill in me an appreciation and a respect for the natural world. Um, my interest in economics came later. I had never been exposed to economics before my first year of college. And I actually remember sitting in my first economics lecture ever thinking, wow, this is just clicking. So economics wasn't at all what I expected. I expected interest rates and, uh, you know, effectively finance. Um, But for me, I found economics to be a way of thinking about the world that really resonated with me. So environmental economics kind of just allows me to combine those, those two features. Yeah, that's great. What about you, Matt? Well, my sort of interest started almost by accident. I was, as an undergrad at the University of Vermont, I was studying environmental science initially. And then my first job after graduating, I was working on lakes and invasive species, Eurasian water milfoil in the lakes in Vermont. And we went around to a bunch of different community uh, lake associations and were presenting the results of some of our research. And I realized in that process that Nobody, at least at the time, cared much about our science at all. Everybody just cared about the property values of their houses and the lakes that were being um, impaired by this um, invasive species. And so I kind of, my eyes got kind of opened up to uh, economics as being an important dimension to environmental problems. And so I ended up going and getting a master's degree in that and then came back and forth with a love of economics over time. And then I've kind of settled just because it seems like an area that that strikes me as really important for thinking about how to understand environmental problems and how to come up with solutions. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you both. That's really interesting background. And um, yeah, and I think lays the groundwork really well for the conversation. So um, Mary, let me turn back to you for a second. And can I ask you to start sort of the, the meat of our conversation here by giving us a refresher on the MATS rule in general. So why it was originally designed, when it was finalized, when it took effect, or any other background that you feel like our listeners should know about the rule? Sure, yeah. So MATS actually has a a somewhat complicated history. So I'm gonna attempt to give you the elevator pitch version. 
Um, MATS was promulgated by EPA back in 2012 to regulate emissions of mercury and other hazardous air pollutants, or HAPs, from coal and oil-fired power plants. And at the time, EPA determined that MATS was, quote, appropriate and necessary, which is a legal term, um, as required under the Clean Air Act. And that, that appropriate and necessary determination is important, and we'll sort of revisit it, I think, throughout our discussion today. But that initial determination was motivated by three factors. Um, the first is the threat that the mercury and HAP emissions pose to public health. The second is the fact that power plants represent the largest domestic source of mercury emissions. And then finally, the availability of technology that could be re used to reduce those emissions. A few years later, MATS uh, ended up in the courts, and in 2015, the Supreme Court ruled that in making its appropriate and necessary determination, EPA needed to consider cost, explicitly to consider cost. Um, but at the time, the court also allowed the rule to be implemented. Right? So it basically said, EPA, you have to go back and take a look at the cost, but we're going to allow power plants to proceed in complying with the rule. So the next year, which was 2016, power plants did just that. They began demonstrating compliance with MATS. And around that same time, EPA issued its findings on cost. It used several different metrics, but one of those metrics was a reference to um, a benefit cost analysis that EPA had done in support of the rule back in 2011. And that benefit cost analysis uh, showed that the benefits of MATS far exceeded its cost. And so kind of the punchline is that, that that 2016 finding, which accounted for cost explicitly as required by the court, came to the same conclusion as back in 2012, namely that regulating mercury and other HAPs is appropriate and necessary. Mm -hmm. Can I just ask one yeah. point of clarification? Sure. So just to make sure I'm getting this here. So the, the rule went, um, went through the legal system based on the idea that the rule as originally promulgated hadn't accounted for costs or hadn't done so in sufficient detail, but it sounds like um, there was in fact some benefit cost analysis that went in from the beginning. There was, and, okay. and Matt, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my understanding is that costs were not explicitly considered in making that appropriate and necessary determination. Gotcha. Okay. Right. Yes. I, there are subtleties to the legal language and the legal system that I realize have very profound implications for these kinds of rules, but are... Um, definitely outside of my expertise. So yes, and, and not being a lawyer, I'm sure I'm not picking up on all of those either. <laughs> um, okay, all right, great. So, uh, so in 2016, where we left off, um, plants were beginning to, to comply, essentially to put in place equipment that would allow them to meet the, the standards promulgated through the rule. Is that That's right? right? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and what has happened since 2016? Well, if we fast forward a few years to 2019, um, that's when the Trump EPA issued a proposal to rescind that appropriate and necessary determination. And in rescinding that determination, that would remove the legal basis for the rule. So while it's technically not a rollback, um, it would in effect be a rollback, right? It would um, make uh, the rule or compliance with the rule sort of subject to um, challenge in the courts. 
and that, that kind of brings us up to date in terms of the regulatory history, that um, proposal to rescind the appropriate and necessary finding, that hasn't yet been finalized. And we, we don't, we're not sure exactly when that's going to happen. We, we anticipate in the near future, but how near in the future, uh, we're, we're uncertain. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so Matt, let me turn to you. And um, so what can you tell us about why the current administration has chosen to take another look at Matt's? What are their concerns? Sure. Well, as um, your readers will certainly be um, well aware, the, the uh, Trump administration and the EPA in particular has been in a very strong pattern of pursuing regulatory rollbacks um, and environmental protection and public health uh, protections are some of the big areas that they have been focused on. And MATS is an example of that, but in some ways it's a more um, subtle one. So there's many sort of EPA rules that have been rolled back for various reasons and have done some cost-benefit analyses, which have the types of issues that come up in them are some that we might um, find problems with or, or, or quibble with. But MATS is kind of important in the sense because when it was first proposed, Mary did a great job of telling us the background. It's also a very important regulation because it was at the time, it was considered to have some like astronomical benefits in terms of the public health um, benefits that would happen from a reduction in, um, in pollution emissions. And so it was considered very economically beneficial. And in the process of sort of revisiting this appropriate and necessary finding, the EPA is sort of showing a different kind of strategy. Instead of directly rolling back a rule by pulling it back, it's kind of eroding and trying to undermine the legal basis for it. So Mary mentioned before that MATS would likely be subject to legal challenge if this appropriate necessary finding gets overturned. And I think that that's part of the strategy here. Instead of just... Um, trying to roll back the rule, it's taking away the process that led to the rule in the first place. And in some ways, that can be more problematic because it can have consequences beyond MATS in terms of how we think about comparing the costs and benefits of a whole host of environmental regulations, not just mercury and uh, hazardous air pollutants. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, um, I, I will note that the title of the paper, which is Deep Flaws in a Mercury Regulatory Analysis, I would say pretty much sums up the overall conclusion that you and your co-authors came to. And uh, you call out three primary reasons that you feel that this analysis, that EPA's analysis, has some pretty significant challenges. Um, so Mary, let's, let's start with the first of those, which deals with so-called co-benefits. And uh, can you tell us sort of what co-benefits are in economic terms? Just help us understand that term a little better. And then tell us about how the Trump administration is considering them differently than in the past, and maybe a little bit about why you feel that that interpretation might be flawed. Sure. So let's kind of start very big picture. Um, Co-benefits are benefits that arise from changes that take place as a result of some regulation, but from changes that are not the direct focus of that regulation. So now let's, let's go a little bit more narrowly in thinking about the MATS context. In MATS, as I said, the regulation is targeting mercury and HAP emissions. So we can think about those pollutants as being the target of the regulation, right? But when power plants comply with MATS, they might, for example, switch to using cleaner fuels or they might install pollution control equipment those actions also reduce their emissions of harmful particulate matter, or PM. So 
we can think of PM as being the indirect pollutant or the co-pollutant. And the health benefits that arise from reductions in PM have been called co-benefits. Okay? So if we think about co-benefits from the perspective of a benefit-cost analysis, well, you know, benefits are benefits, whether they arise from reductions in the, the target pollutant or from reductions in some co-pollutant. And if we treat all benefits equally, then that is both consistent with economic fundamentals, and importantly, it's also consistent with long-standing guidance on benefit-cost analysis from both EPA as well as the Office of Management and Budget. And so in the case of MATS, what has the Trump EPA done differently? Well, um, you know, I, er I earlier referenced the 2019 proposal to rescind the appropriate and necessary finding, and Matt talked a little bit about um, how benefits and costs were, were considered in that context. Well, EPA, at the time of uh, the proposal to rescind that finding, they released a benefit-cost memo. And I'm going to reference it as a memo because they didn't redo the benefit-cost analysis, uh, sort of, they didn't start anew and redo a benefit-cost analysis. What they did was they reproduced the benefits and costs from EPA's original benefit-cost analysis completed back in 2011 with one major exception, and that was the elimination, the complete elimination of co-benefits, okay? So the impact of that was, was significant. It essentially changed the bottom line of the benefit-cost comparison from one in which benefits far exceeded cost to the reverse, right? So I've already said that the failure to account for co-benefits is inconsistent with economic principles and regulatory guidance, but, but it might be helpful for some listeners to have another example to think about the intuition on why ignoring co-benefits is problematic just from the perspective of decision-making. So let, let's think about kind of a, a non-environmental example. Let's suppose we have a pharmaceutical company and the company is developing a drug to treat epilepsy, right? And let's suppose that through the company's research and development, uh, it discovers that the drug is also an effective painkiller, right? Now, at some point, the company will face a decision, right? And that decision is, should we bring this drug to the market? and incur the cost of doing so. For example, should we spend the money required to get FDA approval and so on? So when the company is faced with that decision, would the company ignore the potential revenues it could earn by selling the drug as a painkiller, right? Almost certainly not. <laughs> Almost certainly not, because from the firm's perspective, those represent true revenues, right? Not to mention the fact that they represent true benefits to patients, even though they came about indirectly, right? So in the case of MATS, those PM co-benefits, they are bona fide public health benefits, right? And they deserve to be considered on equal footing with the direct benefits of the rule. Hmm. Great, that was a very helpful explanation. I, I guess just, again, one, one quick clarifying question. Um, so does that imply, however, that in fact, reductions from mercury alone, from the pollutant that this rule was in fact or designed to target in the first place are potentially much smaller than the co-benefits. And so that's one of the reasons why the calculation changes so radically when those co-benefits are taken, taken out of the, literally taken out of the equation. 
Yeah, so, it, so in that original analysis um, that was done in 2011, there was only one benefit category that was monetized. And that was a very narrowly defined benefit category, which was increased IQs for children who would be born to women living in recreational angler households. And so um, because of that narrow focus, the direct benefits were in the range of four to six million dollars. Right? Whereas the, the PM co-benefits, well, they're measured in the billions. Wow. That does seem like a very narrow focus. Okay. Interesting. All right. Um, well, thanks. Thank you, Mary, for talking through that first main point of criticism. Um, I want to turn to another one as well and ask you about... Um, Another, again, another point of criticism that you call out. So you and your colleagues note that the Trump administration's analysis fails to account for recent science that identifies uh, other important sources of direct health benefits from reducing mercury emissions, such as fewer heart attacks. So you just, you know, you just told us about how the original direct benefits were fairly small. It sounds like there are other direct benefits that should be looked at. So what can you tell us about those? Yeah, that's right. So, so let's think about that, that narrowly defined benefit category. It's, and it, it's narrow in, in sort of at least two important dimensions. First, it's only one health endpoint, right? Increased IQs. And second, it's a very specific impacted population, children born to women within recreational angler households. And that 2011 analysis, it did mention other potential direct benefits, but it didn't quantify any other direct benefits. And the reason for that was that at the time, EPA felt like there was too much uncertainty about um, those other direct benefit categories to move forward in monetizing them. Okay, so now let's fast forward to uh, 2018. That's the time when EPA merely replicated the direct benefits that were reported in that 2011 analysis. Right? But keep in mind that almost a decade had passed, right? and during that time, scientists began to have a, a little bit of a better understanding uh, on how mercury emissions from power plants disperse and end up bioaccumulating in seafood that then gets consumed by us. And that more recent research suggests exposure for a far greater portion of the population, not just the recreational angler households that were the exclusive focus of the earlier analysis, right? So that, that sort of deals with the impacted population. That is, there's more recent research suggesting that a larger number of people would be impacted just by reductions in the mercury emissions, right? And, and for example, even if we focus just on increased IQs. But the, the second um, factor to consider has to do with other direct benefits that might relate to other health endpoints, right? And in particular, we focused in our paper on the potential for there to be cardiovascular effects of mercury exposure on the basis of some studies that find a link between mercury exposure and heart attack risk. Um, so, you know, as an economist, I'm, I'm not particularly well suited to assess that body of literature, right? Uh, that's a task for epidemiologists and toxicologists. But if we apply the mercury and heart attack link that's found in those studies, then the direct benefits of MATS are much, much higher, right? So there have been a couple of studies that have done just that. So they've looked at what would be the cardiovascular benefits of MATS in terms of reduced uh, heart attack risk. 
And one study in particular that uh, came out in 2016 estimates that mats would provide direct benefits of more than $100 billion, right? And again, that far exceeds the four to $6 million with an M in direct benefits that was sort of carried forward into EPA's recent cost-benefit memo. So when it comes to direct benefits, I think the punchline is that, you know, had EPA redone the benefit-cost analysis, taking into account these more recent findings, then the final calculation might look very different. Right, right. Okay. Well, and Matt, let me turn to you. Um... And, and ask you about the third point that you and your co-authors lay out. And you note that the analysis ignores uh, what you refer to as transformative changes in the structure and the operations of the electricity sector over the last decade. Um, and you point out that these changes make compliance with the MATS rule much cheaper and therefore presumably lower the cost of the rule. So we been primarily talking about the benefit side. Now let's turn and talk about the cost for a second. So Matt, can you tell us a little bit more about what's changed in that area in the past decade and why that matters in this case? Sure. Um, so since the original Matt's benefit cost analysis that Mary has been talking about, um, as she mentioned, what the agency did in their more recent analysis in support of their proposed rule was not conduct a new benefit cost analysis, but just go back in time eight years and reinterpret the numbers that they uh, estimated in that earlier analysis. But since that time, we've had tremendous change in particular in the way that we generate electricity in the United States. Your listeners will also be familiar with the ideas that we have had a tremendous shift from coal generation to natural gas. We also generate a lot more of our electricity from renewables and both natural gas and renewables, of course, emit much less uh, mercury and other hazardous air pollutants than coal. So what that means is since that time when that original analysis was done, the whole landscape has changed. Some of those years, it is true that the MATS regulation has been in place, but it turns out that we have it's been much less costly to comply with the regulation than was originally anticipated. So the costs have actually gone down a lot, but it turns out that the benefits have actually gone down a lot too, because the emissions were not as high as they would have been without the MATS regulation, which raises an, another sort of important question over these years is how much of the reduction in um, generation from coal and more polluting sources has been a result of MATS or would have happened otherwise. And to this question, we don't do original research to answer it, but we do lean on some other research that has been done by some economists that show that a vast majority of that emission reductions would have occurred anyway, even without the regulation. So, so primarily, it's the shift to natural gas, which has happened because of the changes in the industry of hydrologic fracking and the decreasing cost of natural gas has led to very unprecedented shifts in the way that we generate electricity consumption. And so this leaves us in a situation where now we are in 2020 and we're thinking about whether or not uh, the match rule is appropriate and necessary. And in order to do that and factor in costs, we want to think about, well, how do the costs of this rule compare to the benefits? And what we know is that the costs are much lower and we know that the benefits are much lower, but we're also missing an important category of direct benefits that Mary mentioned before. And so the outcome is that we don't actually really know. And so to just go back in time, about eight years, eight years in the past, and reinterpret numbers is just not a satisfactory way for the EPA to sort of have a, 
180 degree turn in whether or not it thinks a very significant environmental regulation is appropriate and necessary without actually doing original analysis to see if that conclusion mm -hmm. is well-founded. Right. Okay. Well, and you know, Matt, that's actually a really nice lead in into my sort of my final question for you both. Um, and thank you for this very clear overview of what's been happening in this important rule. But I, I guess I wanted to sort of wrap up this substantive part of our conversation by asking, so you've laid out some challenges, some significant challenges. Um, and Matt, if you were the, for lack of a better term, the benefit cost czar in the federal government right now, uh, what would you recommend that the Trump administration do to address the challenges that you've laid out? Would they in fact go back and um, and do that original research that you just mentioned? Are there other steps that they should take? What would your recommendation be? I think for this case, in order to have a justification, at least on an economics basis, for overturning their twice-held previous decisions, I think that it actually does require a new analysis that takes advantage of the best available science and using appropriate economic methods. So I would say that in particular, that that is, that is what is required and as Mary mentioned before, you know, the final rule hasn't come out yet. So, you know, it could happen any day now. We don't know. But we're hoping that in part that this maybe contributes to the much criticism that the EPA has been hearing. And they reevaluate this and actually go ahead and do that sort of analysis. But I would also just say a, a, a broader point is that, you know, you come and you have different types of uh, administrations and they have different political orientations, be it Democratic or, or Republican. And, um, and that stuff is, is inevitable. And, and, and in some cases, it's appropriately so. But what we're seeing here is this is an example of where sort of the political agenda of an administration is filtering down into how they're doing the economic analysis. And the EPA over the past three or four decades has made tremendous strides in as many ways as a leader among the government agencies for doing economic, rigorous economic analysis, cost-benefit analysis where it's really important for these environmental and public health regulations. And I fear that some of these types of moves that have been coming out of the Trump administration recently are basically going to undermine the credibility of the agency to actually be providing credible information that the public can actually rely on as a source against to, to separate out political orientation versus um, what really is a good cost-benefit analysis. And, and I think that that's really important. So, so if I was the czar, I would say it's really important that we don't let sort of political views filter down to how we actually are doing our science and our economic analysis. And that's mm -hmm. really important in the long term. Yeah, well, and that reminds me too a little bit of sort of the genesis of the, the set of authors who actually came together to put this paper together. And um, my understanding is that you as a group um, came together to act as a, an informal but expert and external advisory board to replace the Environmental Economics Advisory Committee that in fact used to live within EPA and was disbanded at some point. And so can you say a little bit more about the EEAC and kind of the role that you hope that would play in informing these types of analyses sort of in the short or long term? Sure, yeah, so this, this report is actually the first to come out of um, a relatively new organization. Um, you, you, you had the, uh, the acronym right, so it's the EEAC, so E-E-E-A-C, and it stands for External Environmental Economics Advisory Committee. And uh, so the, the intention of that organization was, as you said, to kind of replace um, the previous 
EAC, which were, existed under the structure of EPA's Science Advisory Board. The EPA made the decision back in 2018 to retire that committee. Matt and I were both members of the committee at the time of its retirement. And some of us from the committee just decided that uh, we needed to do something to fill the vacuum that was created um, by the retirement of that committee. And so we created this organization. Uh, we've gotten some funding from the Sloan Foundation and other funders. Uh, and with that, that funding, we are starting to fund review committees to look at different rules or um, actions that EPA might take, which um, might have been looked at by the previous committee, which no longer exists. So the, the MATS committee, um, of which Matt and I were both a part, is the first committee. We also have another committee that's looking at the waters of the US um, rule, and we're hoping to sort of um, you know, move forward in funding a couple of more committees uh, in the next couple of years. I guess our, our ultimate goal is that EPA make the decision to um, recreate the EAC within its internal structure. But until that time, we're planning to exist uh, with this external organization. Great. All right. Well, thank you for talking us through that, too. And you're welcome to come back on the podcast anytime to tell us about future projects that you have as well. Um, well, thank you both again very much. This has been a really um, illuminating and uh, I think important discussion. And yeah, I just really appreciate you taking the time. Um, so I, I, I wanted to close the podcast with our regular feature, which we call Top of the Stack. And we ask our guests to recommend some good content. Uh, it can be a book, it can be an article, another podcast. Um, recommend something to our listeners. And it can be related to the topics that we're talking about. Or quite frankly, it can just be something fun and interesting. And I think particularly in this time of relative isolation, um, you know, the more mirthful, the better. <laughs> so Mary and Matt, let me ask you both, what's on the top of your respective stacks? Matt, do you want to go ahead first? Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, I, I think right now, um, what's on the top of my stack and what's on the bottom of my stack are the same things, which is how to teach your kids math um, all of a sudden in addition to my normal uh, research uh, obligations and, and, and teaching. I am uh, involved in teaching my uh, first grader and kindergartner here um, about um, math. But nice. other, other than that, so that, that's, that's, that, that is my stack. But uh, one, one, one thing that, is, that did strike me as kind of interesting, and in some ways it was triggered by this work that um, we did, is I, I happened to be looking at Science Magazine um, when our paper came out to see it posted there. And I saw another paper there, which is reminds me of everything that's going on in the world right now, where there's, you, we've all probably seen some of these articles about how, you know, one um, interesting feature of during these challenging times that we're seeing are these tremendous declines in um, pollution with these satellite images that are going on. And I'm looking forward to all the future studies that are gonna take advantage of that in various ways. But it turns out that last week in science, there is an article, an in-depth archaeology article that is titled Lead Pollution Tracks the Rise and Fall of Medieval Kings. And it seems like, you know, we, we think we're discovering some of these new patterns today, but this is sort of during successful kings over time. And when they are during their reign, there's basically they can look back and I haven't read the paper yet, so it's on my stack. Um, but look at trends in mercury pollution. So this seems like ah. something I want to check out. And maybe some of the readers might find it interesting, too. Yeah, you'll have to send it along to me as well, Matt. Sure. <laughs> That's great. What about you, Mary? Well, I'm going to give a decidedly lighter recommendation. <laughs> okay. Um, 
as you said, this is an unusual time. It also happens that we're recording on a Saturday. Uh, so I'm going to give you uh, a recommendation that I am certain is unusual for this podcast. But over the past few weeks, I have uh, experienced a lot of joy listening to a DJ uh, who has started to spin on Instagram Live almost every night uh, during the week. And his name is D-Nice, and he calls the virtual community he's created Club Quarantine. And it started out, you know, with 100 or so listeners, and it's grown to, I think, one evening, it was over 100,000 people who were tuning in on Instagram Live to listen to him. And, you know, he plays a mixture of, of genres, but he's pretty heavy on the hip hop and R&B from the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if that's your jam, you can check him out <laughs> later today on Instagram. Well, fantastic. That is definitely a mirthful recommendation. Uh, and yes, as you noted, appropriate for a Saturday evening. So, um, well, thank you both again. This has been a pleasure. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you in the future, either as other studies come out of the EEAC or as your other research continues. And I hope you both stay safe and well. Sounds great. You as thank well, you. Kristen. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode. <laughs>